This is episode number 176, The Best Way to Fight Climate Change, with Cornell PhD Bruce Munger. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Every so often, a generation gets called upon to do something extraordinary. And in 1940, a generation was asked to fight a world war. And then a lot of generations went by that didn't get asked much of. But this generation is being asked to do something as extraordinary, if not more so, which is to bring the global energy system to zero carbon emissions by mid-century. That is the calling that this generation is asked to rise up to. And if we do it, we will be celebrated for the rest of humanity. If we don't, we will be cursed for the rest of humanity. Thank you for hanging out with us today. And I think that you're really going to enjoy today's episode. It's very timely with everything going on. It just seems like there's been a needle shift with climate change lately. And it's something that's been on my mind for a really long time, back to my solar engineering days. But it just seems like in the last couple of weeks, a bunch of companies have come forward to try to offset their carbon or things like, I think it was the Grammys and the Golden Globes going plant-based. Like, I think things are happening and it's really exciting. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them and they definitely make us feel super stoked and put wind in our sails whenever we see that you guys are enjoying the show. If you're interested in adding more plant-based food into your daily life or even weekly life, you're more than welcome to join our free Facebook group called Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney. And you don't have to eat 100% plant-based to be a part of it. You just have to be interested in eating plant-based. And there's lots of awesome things going in there. It's a definitely a community group where everybody is contributing. They're writing recipes. They're sharing articles. So if you want to join, just go to Facebook or just go in the show notes. And if you want my favorite recipes, I published a cookbook. It hasn't quite been a year, but I published my own cookbook. It is an e-cookbook called Plant Powered Tribe, and it's available at moxyandgrit.com. That's M-O-X-Y and grit.com. And there's over 20 recipes. They're all optimized for really healthy food that will make you go faster And it's also really easy to make. And that's something that is a big obstacle for a lot of people with eating plant-based is that some of the meals can take a long time to make. And the meals that I have in my cookbook are fast and easy. So let's talk about today's guest, Dr. Bruce Munger. He is a senior lecturer and researcher in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Cornell University. His research involves the use of satellite remote sensing methods to study environmental controls of ocean primary production at global scales. He currently serves as a member of NASA's Ocean Biology and Biogeochemistry Science team. I discovered him while I was doing my certificate in plant-based nutrition from Cornell University. It's a six-week course, and even though I've spent literally thousands of hours studying plant-based nutrition on my own, I really enjoyed this course because it covered other things, primarily in this case, talking about the environment, but it does talk about nutrition. It talks about paradigms. There's just a lot of great things in that Cornell course, but the module that Dr. Munger taught really, really struck a chord with me because I got to learn a bunch of new things about the environment that I didn't know before. I've been eating plant-based for about seven years, and I was amazed with what I learned from his lectures 
and I immediately sent him an email inviting him to come on the show. And thankfully, he said yes. Global climate change is a huge issue. And I think it's something that everybody knows it's a huge issue, but we feel like we don't really know what we can do to help stop it. I think offsetting your carbon emissions is great, but I don't think it's something that we can buy our way out of. And a lot of our daily choices that we make and what we choose to consume as individuals make a huge difference, whether it be food, whether it be plastics. There's so many different things that we can do to make uh, less of a footprint on our planet. And it's in a pretty dire place. The first step comes from just being educated on how dire the situation actually is and the things that we can do to prevent it from getting worse. And Dr. Munger says that we, we being our generation, is essentially responsible for either turning our back on the planet and how future generations are going to be forced to live if we don't make changes, or we can be the generation that created a paradigm shift and saved the planet for future beings. There's a finite amount of CO2 that can be released into the air before Earth's temperature increases to a point where things like fresh water, the ability to grow food, and extreme weather incidents will occur. Our choices in the next decade or two, yes, the next decade or two, that's how close it is, will forever impact the planet and how all beings will exist and live moving forward. In this episode, you'll learn the key elements of climate change and what you can do to make an impact as an individual, the consequences of global warming, and what happens if Earth's temperature increases by only 2 degrees Celsius, and we are on track to do that in the next 10 to 20 years. The definition of net zero carbon emissions, super interesting learning about nutrient pollution, nitrogen fertilizer, and how that is causing the dead zones in the ocean and how the ocean affects our environment. It's all linked together and how you can make personal changes in your life that truly do make a difference. This show is really important to share with your friends if you're passionate about the environment. And I'm just really excited that Dr. Munger took the time to come on the show because I learned a lot and I think that you're going to learn a lot as well. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Dr. Munger. Thank you. Super excited to chat with you. I've spent a lot of time talking about plant-based diets for health, and you're the first person that has come on talking about the environment. And after I took the eCornell course and watched your lectures, I was just really amazed with all the things that I learned from you. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I do periodically get messages from former participants of that certification program that that uh, are super excited because they've learned not only are what they're doing plant-based diet-wise good for their body, but it's also good for the planet, and they get pretty excited about it. Yeah, I had watched a documentary, Cowspiracy, a while ago, but then I didn't really look further into the research and I had heard all these things saying that some of the facts were wrong and then I didn't actually check to see what was factual and what wasn't. And Yeah, um, it's, yeah. it definitely bends things on the high end and there's some conspiracy theories that go on there too that, you know, I, I, it's been a while since I watched that one, but I, I watched it with some level of skepticism, I guess. Okay, so tell us about your career a little bit before we dive into all these questions I have. Yeah, well, my career has been as a biological oceanographer for the, for the most part. Although I got my undergrad degree in, in physical oceanography, I got my PhD in biological oceanography, and I use orbiting satellites to look at how kind of natural variability in the dynamics of the physical ocean impact ocean biology at large scales, sort of ocean-basing scales or planetary scales. 
I also teach a number of courses at Cornell, and the one that I teach that I like the most actually is it's the most popular course at Cornell now. It has over a thousand students enrolled in it, and uh, it's introductory oceanography, but about Half the semester, it's about climate change, ocean acidification, overfishing, uh, coastal pollution, and and a call to arms, essentially, to raise your voice, to trying to get students activated to to raise their voices to try to change the world for the better. They have an end of the semester uh, writing assignment to write a letter to Congress asking leaders to enact policies that will bring us in line <laughs> with with what the earth can provide for us, I think, best way to say it. So I started I, as a physical oceanography. I grew up PhDs-wise as a biological oceanographer, and now I'm a pretty strong lecturer advocate for getting the word out about what's happening to the oceans and the planet writ large. And then more importantly, or just as importantly, to try to tell students that they need to act on this, that it won't get better by just sort of learning about it. It'll only get better if you raise their voice and start asking for change. And I think this is interesting because I'd like to know from when you started your schooling and the research that's come out over that that time period and, and the work that you've done. Initially, what was the main cause of like ocean pollution and global climate change? And when has it sort of focused more on the agriculture business or has it always been focused on agriculture and fertilizers and things like that? It was not, it's not, no, it's not really the course that I teach and the, you know, the components that I put out are a part of a larger picture, I think. So I wouldn't say that I focus on agriculture and its impacts on on the ocean. It, It is a definite contributor for sure, a big part. But yeah, you know, I'll talk quite a bit in my course about, you know, carbon emissions from fossil carbon energy and, you know, sort of the larger picture of climate change and the kind of the projections of where we're headed if we don't bring carbon emissions and CO2 emissions to net zero by mid-century. So it's it's not just focused on animal agriculture. That's just one component of it. I can tell you briefly how I started, you know, producing some of these lectures for the Colin Campbell plant-based certification program is a good friend of mine was helping Colin Campbell produce these eCornell courses. And I didn't know about it. I knew I've been a, quote, vegetarian for 30 years. And I was getting uh, lunch with a friend of mine, and she said she was working with Colin Campbell to put this plant-based certification program together about nutrition and its good, you know, benefits to your health. And I said, well, just to let you know, it's not just good for your health, it's good for the planet. And I talked about a couple of lectures in my overall sequence about impacts of animal agriculture on coastal pollution and river rivers and streams and coastal pollutions and impacts of overfishing and, and other incidental problems with fishing. And she kind of was surprised by it and said, do you want to add that? You know, do you want to do some lectures for this course? And so I kind of brought got brought into the new, you know, the plant-based nutrition slash animal agriculture kind of world by chance, almost by this friend meeting I had quite some years ago now. Oh, that's super interesting. I guess so people listening to this are probably thinking, you know, like the listeners are people who are very much engaged in the outdoors and they care about the environment. And I don't want to just be singly focused on one thing, because if people can do multiple things to, you know, protect the planet from climate change, I'd love to kind of give an overview of kind of what those key elements are. But then I do want to go into more detail about the animal agriculture and the water pollution and and those types of things. 
Okay. So like, what are the main key elements if you have to have like main buckets that are contributing to climate change and the ones where people have the most control and can make the biggest impact as an individual? Well, uh, as far as climate change goes, animal agriculture kind of contributes and there's some, you know, controversy about how much animal agriculture contributes. And, uh, you know, the numbers range from the high of 51 percent World Watch Institute put out uh, a few years back saying that they've taken a more holistic assessment of what goes into animal agriculture, including clearing land and, you know, uh, deforestation. Uh, When you burn the trees, you put that CO2 that was held, the carbon held in the trees gets converted through combustion to CO2 uh, carbon in the atmosphere. And they come up with a number of 51% of total greenhouse gas emissions contributed by the you know, actions of animal agriculture, both direct and indirect through clearing of land, et cetera. Others, the FAO, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, estimates is more like 15% versus 51%. And that number still goes back and forth, I think, a bit. Um, Either way, it's a significant contribution, whether it's 15% or 50%. It's one that we shouldn't ignore. If we want to get to zero net emissions by the middle of the century, we have to address the contributions that animal agriculture are having on climate change, on emissions. And what about things like driving your car or factories? Yeah, um, sure. All those are going to contribute. The factories, I forget, electric. I don't have the breakdown in front of me here on what percent of total greenhouse gases is by light vehicle? It's probably in the somewhere 25% range. Electricity generation is probably, you know, half or more. So I'm, I'm kind of guessing a little bit on those percentages, but um, substantial percentages by, you know, fossil carbon energy utilization, whether it's in your car or whether it's in coal or natural gas powered electric generation. I'll just back up one and say that, you know, when I give my lectures about climate change, especially I get students coming up afterwards saying, you know, what can I do directly to help, you know, and and a few years ago, I used to say things like, you know, eat less meat, easy one to do. And then I'd say, you know, public transportation or live close to where you either go to school or, or work. But, you know, these days I absolutely top of the list say vote. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and Greta Thunberg, when she left the U.S. for Spain for the climate talks a month ago or so, her parting comment on what you could do is vote. So can't emphasize enough. You can ask any climate scientists, you know, what holds us back from action? And every single one will say, we've got the technology. We, we've got studies done that shows we can convert to zero carbon emissions without crashing the global economy. The one thing we don't have is leadership. That's the only thing holding us back. And so I tell students in my class, you guys all vote, or you should. And if you vote, you know, your voting is what holds us back. And getting leaders in that will act on these things are, are what's desperately needed. I wanted to talk about CO2. And something that I learned from you is that whenever these deforestation projects are happening and all these trees are being burned, the CO2 actually stays in the atmosphere for like 10,000 years. So whenever we're creating CO2, it's not like it just like goes away. Nope, it doesn't go away. It stays around for a long, long time. Yeah, and I tell, you know, students in my class that, you know, there's always been a finite limit to how much CO2 we could add to the atmosphere because it essentially stays there forever. 
And it's been accumulating for the last 5,000 years, you know, since we started clearing land for uh, agriculture in Mesopotamia. And it's accelerated with the Industrial Revolution. And there's always been this limit sitting there. And we are fast approaching it. And in another 12 years, we will cross the 1.5 limit. We'll have added without any changes in our emissions at this point. We'll cross 1.5 concentration of CO2 that produces 1.5 degree warming in 12 years. And by the end of the century, or by mid-century, if we don't curtail, we will cross the two degree warming, which is the upper limit on what we should definitely, it's not a comfortable upper limit, it's the absolute upper limit on what we shouldn't cross. 1.5 is the limit that we really would like to stay below, and 2.0 is the limit that we just absolutely should not cross. And uh, yeah, and once we cross, we cross forever, essentially. And so, you know, the kind of the climate that we produce with 1.5 and 2.0 will stay with us for 10,000 years. And I tell students that, you know, you know, if we get our act together, you know, if we solve this problem, if we rise up and don't shrink back and we do bring emissions to zero carbon emissions by mid-century, we are going to be celebrated for the next 10,000 years. You know, the future generations are going to write epic poems told again and again about how we saved this gener uh, all future generations. They'll build great monuments to this generation. But if we shrink back and we let this thing cross, it crosses forever, we are going to be cursed by future generations for 10,000 years. They're going to be future generations, rest of humanity, essentially, growing up, looking at this particular generation, asking why, you know, you knew, you knew, why did you let it cross? Yeah, I say, you know, in my ocean classes where I get on my soapbox and I say every so often a generation gets called upon to do something extraordinary. And in 1940, a generation was asked to fight a world war. And then a lot of generations went by that didn't get asked much of. But this generation is being asked to do something as extraordinary, if not more so, which is to bring the global energy system to zero carbon emissions by mid-century. That is the calling that this generation is asked to rise up to. And if we do it, we will be celebrated for the rest of humanity. If we don't, we will be cursed for the rest of humanity. And what are the consequences of the crossing the two-degree threshold? Well, there's all sorts of possibilities of positive climate feedbacks spinning out of control that won't let us have any say in the matter. And examples of this are permafrost melting that releases methane into the atmosphere, which is a powerful greenhouse gas as well. That warms the atmosphere and it melts more permafrost, which releases more methane that warms it even more and releases more on and on and on in a big cycle. So runaway climate change is one scary aspect. And the other ones are above two degrees. World food productions are going to decline. Most crops right now are at their at their thermal tolerances, at their thermal limits, I mean. And, uh, and so... There's a whole area of study these days at universities around the world about global food security and how it is going to be impacted with a warming planet and decreasing crop yields in the face of increasing human population growth. So, so we're going to have a harder time feeding ourselves in a warmer planet. We're going to have a lot more extreme weather in a warmer planet. We're going to have a more acidic ocean. And ocean ecosystems are going to be disrupted, not by warmer ocean, but by higher CO2 that dissolves into the ocean and acidifies the ocean. So all kinds of disruptions in both marine ecosystems and in and terrestrial ecosystems. And 
again, also, <laughs> there's also the, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff there, you know, national security, people aren't going to sit around when there's droughts and just kind of suck it up. They're going to want to move. And so there's going to be human migrations. There's going to be global conflicts. There's going to be a lot of problems. And it's going to come about if we rise up above two degrees. Look at it now. We're one degree above pre-industrial at this point. And we have, you know, we have Australia on fire. We have Superstorm Sandy and droughts in California and floods and, you know, Katrinas, etc. So we're not in good shape right now. We're only at one. 1. 1.5, it's going to be a bit worse than today. And two is going to be really bad. And what do you mean by zero carbon emissions? If someone's listening and they're like, well, I don't even know what that means. Well, it means that we need to convert all of our fossil carbon energy systems. You know, so what we do, <laughs> we need to bring the emission of CO2, which is a byproduct of the combustion of uh, fossil carbon. We dig oil or coal or pump natural gas out of the earth. It's carbon-based. And when we ignite that carbon for energy in our automobiles or our power plants, we release CO2 to the atmosphere. All of those emissions either have to stop and we have to start using renewable energy systems such as wind and solar, hydroelectric, or for every carbon you know, we emit, CO2 we emit, we got to find a way to sequester it some other way, grow more trees, that's a temporary fix potentially sequester it into the earth, extract it from the atmosphere. But none of these things, there are sort of research scale extractions of methods of extracting CO2 from the atmosphere, but but there's no known way to do it at the large scales that we would need to do it to draw down CO2. So anyway, the key term here would be net CO2 emissions, which means we probably have some CO2 emissions for certain things that we can't get past, at least at this point. But they would have to be offset by some way of taking up that CO2, whether it's planting trees or somehow sequestering it into the earth. I'll just add real quick here, because this is a really, God, for me, it was a really important point that I give to my students. As I talk about zero carbon emissions by mid-century, and I ask, like, where did that come from and who said that? <laughs> and, and this is, if your listeners have one thing to hang on, I want you to hang on this one. <laughs> which is the Paris climate talks that happened in 2015, COP21, uh, Conference of Parties on Climate Change. Essentially, every leader of every nation on the planet signed this consensus statement. And that consensus statement said, we absolutely positively shouldn't cross two. And in order to do that, we need to take the global energy system of this planet to zero carbon emissions, net zero by mid-century. This was not some crazy fringe eco-whatever group. This was every leader of every nation on planet Earth. Every leader of every nation on planet Earth said, we need to take the global energy system to zero carbon emissions by mid-century. That, that's a bullseye that we've got to aim for. This is not some made-up number that only a couple of people think is what we got to do. This is every leader of every nation has said that's what we really should do. They haven't done it, and they're not on track at this point to meeting the needs to do that, but that they acknowledge is what has to happen if we want to keep human societies safe. Every leader of every nation on this planet said that. So when people say, oh, it's not really known or there's not a lot of consensus, every leader of every nation on planet Earth signed that document. Yeah, super. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
No, I'm I, done. I love it. I get it. carried away just to let you know. No, that's not carried I, away. I, I, I'm sort of known for my, like, you know, when I get the reviews from my class at the end of the semester class evaluations, it's like passionate, 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 passionate. <laughs> so, well, I also anyway. think that there's something to be said for direct communication that isn't sugarcoated because a lot of times I think, especially with, for some people, it's, you know, difficult topics or, or inflammatory topics. We tend to sugarcoat it and not be as direct as we should be. So, yeah. Well, here's another little piece, I guess, that people tell me. And I've gotten somebody who's, you know, a student last year kind of argued against this idea. But, you know, I get periodically I get students sending me emails saying, you know, I'm back home and my crazy uncle, he doesn't believe in climate change. And what can I do to make him change his mind? You know, And I just say, you know what, I suggest you give up on your uncle. <laughs> And focus on, and this is my this is my strategy. Has what I tell them, and which is, I'm done trying to convince the dead enders that this is a real problem, and my mission is to quote activate those who are already concerned. And so, I, a majority of the people in this country and the world are concerned, you know. And what I want to do is to say, okay, if you're concerned, then do something about it. Don't stand there and kind of wallow around and go, oh, you know, I want you to rise up and be a force for change. So activating people who already care, that's my mission, instead of trying to convince. So I don't sugarcoat anything. I'm just going to, you know, if somebody gets a little bit bothered by my strong words, that's, they can, I don't know, it's their problem. <laughs> anyway. So I'd love to talk about nutrient pollution because I had heard of dead zones in the ocean, but I didn't really understand why. And learning about that from you is was super interesting. And also it just made so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty straightforward process. And if you'd like me to just briefly say it here. Yeah. Um, yeah so if you add a lot of plant nutrient to the coastal ocean, you're going to grow up a lot of phytoplankton, algae in the ocean to unnaturally high levels. That algae will grow so fast and so high that the zooplankton that normally eats that phytoplankton won't be able to keep up. The phytoplankton die as, you know, and, and sink out as dead organic material into the bottom waters of the coastal zone. And that dead organic phytoplankton, you know, material is food for microbial decomposition. It's food for bacteria. And the bacteria will consume that dead organic material. And as they consume it, they will also consume oxygen. That's that's the process. And so the more nutrient you add, the more phytoplankton you grow up, the more dead algae that sinks into the deep ocean, the more food for bacteria, the more oxygen that gets drawn down to lower and lower levels as they feed on that food. And so you draw it down to low levels called hypoxia and zero levels called anoxia. So you create these bottom waters along the coast that basically have no oxygen in them for the most part. And almost everything needs oxygen, whether it's a fish or a clam or an oyster or a worm. There's only a small subset of bacteria and protozoans that are anoxic living organisms. So so it's referred to as a dead zone because anything that is aerobic, anything that needs oxygen, which is most everything you could think of in a normal world, can't live in those bottom waters. And that those bottom waters have grown, the spatial extent of those bottom waters have grown, you know, year by year by year as we've increased our inputs of nitrogen fertilizer onto the land and also changed our, our farming practices to, to industrial kind of farming practices. So Bob Howarth is a professor here at Cornell University, and he's an expert on nitrogen pollution in the environment. 
And he gave guest lectures on nitrogen pollution, which is where I really got interested in it. And he made an offhand comment that we put more nitrogen fertilizer on the ground in the last 15 years than we have in the last 100 years since we invented nitrogen fertilizer. So there's been this exponential increase in our application of nitrogen fertilizers on the land that have then washed into the streams and created these dead zones and expanded these dead zones. They now run along the coast in the, in the case of the United States. This is not just a U.S. problem, by the way. It's a global, you know, any nation that has heavy agriculture has a dead zone problem. And the Mississippi River is the big one for the U.S., but they're around other regions in the U.S. as well. But the U.S. one, it's completely up and down the coast of Louisiana, and it extends all the way to sort of the Texas border and into Texas a bit to the coastal Texas zone. So really expansive scale of these dead zones now. Yeah, I think that a lot of times people think about like fertilizers and they don't realize that the food being grown isn't for us to eat. It's for it's for animals being raised that are, you know, used as as meat. <laughs> yeah, I don't have the numbers in front of me right here, but it's something like two thirds of the land that we grow crops on, two thirds of that land, two thirds is used to feed the animals that we eat. <laughs> so it's, yeah, two-thirds. Two-thirds of the agricultural lands devoted to growing feed for livestock. Yeah, and then I saw that like only 8% of land is used for human consumption. Yeah, 8%. Yep, exactly. Yeah, you've got the same numbers in front of you. Yep. Yeah, so like that's a pretty big deal. And whenever people think, oh, you know, he said eat less meat. And and we're saying we're not saying everybody needs to go 100% plant-based. I no, mean, no, we're just saying no. eat less. Yeah. Um, but people might think like I've gone down this path before of, well, if I just eat less meat, well, they're still going to it's not going to make a difference. Like they're still going to be like, you know, raising the same amount of animals. Other people are still going to keep eating animals and I won't put a dent in that big number. Yeah. yeah, I I guess my own answer to that is you have to live with yourself, <laughs> you know, and this idea of your own perception of your own integrity. And, you know, if you rise up and say, I don't do this because it's not right, and then you act on that and you and you eat less meat, yeah, other people will see it. But for you, you get to know that you're doing, <laughs> you're making your tiny contribution. I mean, it is a fractional decrease, but it's your contribution and you get to feel good about that contribution that you make. And then, you know, you don't have to be a pushy person and talk down to people, but you can just let people know, hey, I chose not to, and I chose for this reason. And, you know, in my ocean class, I tell students I've got this little, after I give them all of the information about how, you know, what contributes to the increase in dead zones, I say, listen, I can't tell you guys to become vegetarians tomorrow. <laughs> and my hope is that you know, you'll go to McDonald's and eat a McDonald's hamburger and you'll kind of the first time after this class and you kind of go, oh boy, there goes the Gulf of Mexico a little bit more. And that might not change you. And maybe, uh, you know, sometime later you'll have another McDonald's hamburger and you'll be like, oh boy, Bruce wouldn't be <laughs> too happy about this, that Gulf of Mexico. And then maybe by the end of the year, you're like, you know what, this is not worth it and I'm not going to do this anymore. So, you know, uh, come to it in your own time. And come to feel good about yourself, I guess, both, I guess, health-wise, if you want to call that thing in, but also just this idea of your own self-image of your, I can't, I don't have the good words for it here, but, you know, your own sense of yourself and your integrity. 
Yeah, and I think, makes- I think the ripple effect of change really is a lot more impactful than people know. And just from like the type of work that I've been doing for, you know, the last 15 years, just making changes and just leading by example yeah. really impact people in ways that you could never even imagine. And then the impact that those people have. So while it might seem like a drop in the bucket, the ripple effect of that drop when it goes in the water is a lot more than you would think. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the dead zones in the Gulf compared to the BP oil spill. Yeah, they're, I mean, I think now they're, a few years back, they were basically comparable in the sort of spatial extent. I think they might even be bigger dead zones now, spatial extent, than the BP oil spill. So, yeah, I I mean, I tried to emphasize it when I said it covers the whole coastline of of, uh, Louisiana and extends into Texas coastlines now. So, it is comparable, if not larger, than the extent of the BP oil spill. So, And there are articles written that would debate whether or not the BP oil spill <laughs> is more harmful to the Gulf of Mexico than the dead zones. And so it's a debate that could go back and forth, I suppose. And I think uh, it was regarding nitrogen fertilizer, and I think it might have been Bob Howarth that was talking about this, but like how corn is one of the worst crops grown for nitrogen pollution. Yeah, it's a particularly leaky crop. Apparently they, you know, I'm not the, ag- Bob is the expert, by the way. He's a good friend of mine and a colleague here. But uh, yeah, they put the nitrogen fertilizer down, I think, as I understand it, in the fall where it can be washed off before the corn comes up in the in the spring. It's referred to as a particularly leaky crop that the fraction of the fertilizer that leaks off corn in particular is high relative to other crops that are that are grown. So it's kind of one of the worst crops. And then I, you know, in the lecture and in my ocean class, I comment that the corn ethanol program is is just not helpful at all to the coastal environment. You know, to grow corn, to make ethanol to put in our cars is just the dumbest idea ever, I think. So um, that also contributes to the problem in addition to eating animals. Yeah, I think that with farming, like people don't realize and, and I mean, I, I certainly don't know the extent of what industrialized farming looks like. Can you just elaborate more what that actually looks like yeah. compared to what it used to look like, like the closed loop type of farming? Yeah. So, you know, if you grow up in upstate New York, where I live now, you'll sometimes see sort of human scale farming around here. There's lots of little tiny farms and uh, that still farm the way they had for you know a good long time, which is, you know, they'll grow some cows and the manure from those cows would be spread onto fields with a manure spreader. And that's going to be the fertilizer to grow more corn to feed those cows. So it's kind of a closed loop. You grow the corn, you feed the cows, you spread the manure from those cows back on the corn fields, and you keep things going in this kind of recycled way. And um, that contrasts with what they do now, which is industrial scale farming, where they take not manure, but they take nitrogen fertilizer, which is made with a lot of fossil carbon energy. It needs, there's a lot of energy required to make this fertilizer. And the fertilizer is laid on the ground and large fraction of that, 20 some percent, altogether 37% when I get to this, a small, a good fraction of that fertilizer you put on the ground to grow the corn washes straight off the corn fields into the rivers and streams. Now, a fraction of that corn that's fed to the animals in these CAFOs, these concentrated agricultural feeding operations, create lots of manure. These manure ponds are created, or these CAFOs 
concentrate the manure in these large ponds, millions of gallons, and they occasionally leak. And that's organic nitrogen now, but it's still nitrogen into the streams. And altogether, 37% of the nitrogen you put down each and every year, you put down 100 units of nitrogen on your crop to grow corn that gets transported to feed animals. All of that nitrogen, 37% of it ends up in the stream, either as washed straight off as nitrogen fertilizer or as organic nitrogen from manure ponds. 37% goes into their streams. The next year, you put another 100 units down, and it's 37% goes into the stream. The next year, you put 100 units down. So it's not a recycled thing anymore. It's a throughput thing. Every year, you lay down a certain number of units of nitrogen, and every year, 37% of that goes into the rivers and streams. And so, you you know, year by year, year by year, you're, you add more and more of this nitrogen to the environment. So that's the difference. Okay. And yeah, you said like one of the best things people can do besides eat less meat is vote. And if we had the right people, the right leaders in place, like how much can policy actually affect change in big agriculture? Because it's such a it's such a yeah. massive high dollar industry. So how much could the government actually muscle that industry? Well, I'm not a big policy person, so I can't really speak too much to this. I did see King Corn, for example, if you've seen that documentary. I haven't. Uh, Well, it's a pretty good one on government subsidies and the fact that a lot of this wouldn't be a problem if we didn't subsidize it with our own tax dollars. We're sort of shooting ourselves in the foot by providing heavy subsidies to the farmers to grow this corn. And uh, I think if you did it without subsidies, you wouldn't even be able to make a profit from it the way it's set up now. So trying to remove a lot of the farm subsidies would be a helpful thing. Getting rid of the ethanol program or the demands that you put a certain amount of ethanol and gasoline I think those things should be pushed down. And that's going to take voting leaders who promote it out and voting leaders who want to fight it in. So I once asked, this is another kind of crazy aside here, I suppose, but I asked Bob Howarth once, I go, is there no upper limit on how much a farmer could put nitrogen fertilizer, could put down on the ground, even though his land's connected to my stream? And he said, nope. That farmer could put as much nitrogen fertilizer down as he wants and let as much of it wash off into the stream as he wants. And I'm like, that is crazy. (laughs) Like, it's one thing to mess up your own land, but your land's connected to my stream and connected to my coastal ocean. And, you know, (laughs) he goes, well, it's because the farm, you know, lobby and the farm industry is super powerful in government. And so it would take a lot, a lot, a lot of work to try to change those things around. But I think You know, becoming informed like you are now, the people who are listening to this broadcast are becoming informed. I'd say, you know, by becoming more and more aware, you start pushing these people more and more, these policymakers more and more to do the right thing. And whenever we say eat less meat, like it's probably... I don't know if there's a way to even quantify like how much less people should eat, but like, is there, has there, have you seen anything in the research? Like if X amount of people changed by this percentage, that would be enough. That way someone has like a guideline. If, if they say, I want to eat less meat this week, like how much less? Well, uh, there's, I don't know. I, again, I've got all these numbers and figures that are usually in PowerPoint slides, but Bob Howarth has a study out. I it might be a 2002 study. He's got a lot of papers out. So if I could narrow it, it would help you guys. But But he did a calculation on, you know, what would happen with the amount of nitrogen fertilizer that needed to be put down on the ground as you transitioned from a super heavy meat diet, like a U.S. kind of crazy heavy meat diet, to a modest meat diet. And it's, you know, in his paper, it's referred to as the Mediterranean diet. 
so a small portion of meat and you know and a larger portion of vegetables and fruits and uh you know it's a substantial drop i forget the numbers now but it's it's definitely not like you have to look really carefully to see the difference between lying full you know fertilizer it's a pretty substantial drop and i don't have the numbers in front of me but but there are studies bob howarth has done it that showed what can happen if you change your practices from you know heavy meat to just modest mediterranean diet there's a substantial drop and the amount of fertilizer needed to grow the corn, to grow those animals that you'd otherwise eat. And I want to change gears a little bit now and talk about fish, because a lot of times people say, well, I don't eat meat, but I eat fish. But consumption of fish is a, a problem in our oceans as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is I, in the lecture I gave in, in uh, the Colin Campbell certification program, the first one I gave more than six years ago or so. And I I say, well, now that I've told you all the bad things about about land, animal agriculture, you might think, well, you know, okay, fine, you know, I can see that that's super bad, and uh, maybe I don't want to have any part of it. I'll I'll just eat fish, and I'm going to tell you now <laughs> that that that's also pretty bad. And yeah, the oceans are basically being severely overfished. I think the word is, you know, something like since uh, about four decades ago, we've removed. Get this number. This is the number that I want to burn into your <laughs> brains as well. 90% of the top predator fish, the best fish, like the top fast-moving big tuna and the swordfish, 90% of those kind of apex predators are referred to as 90% of them have been taken out of the ocean. We only have 10% remaining. That's the top predator, apex predators, not all the fish in the ocean. So we haven't depleted the entire ocean by 90%, but but we have taken out those best fish, 90% of them. 93% of the world fisheries are either maxed out or overexploited. I think about the early 1990s is when the ocean, you know, the total amount of metric tons of fish taken out of the ocean maxed out in the early 90s. And it didn't max out because we stopped, you know, attempting to get more fish out of the ocean. It maxed out because the ocean just can't provide any more fish than that. So, we have maxed out the ocean and in many cases we're overfishing the ocean so that that is not the answer to <laughs> that is not the answer to not eating meat on land because if you turn to the ocean they're already maxed out and in many cases in decline yeah and something that i i saw that you mentioned which i never thought about in terms of fish consumption is fish oil consumption because a lot of people think oh i need to get my omega-3s from fish oil how much is the fish oil industry contributing to this? Is it enough to make a difference? Again, I wish I had, you know, breakdowns of numbers like that. But it's a it's a substantial contribution for sure. And uh, it was a New York Times article that talked about Manhattan and the, and the the oil, the fish oil industry. So it's substantial. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's a, I can just say it's substantial contribution. You know, that fish oil, you know, component in my lectures that I give in the ocean class is one part of a bigger picture on some of the impacts we're having. And I, I tie it into some of the things that are related to aquaculture. And I'll say that that aquaculture has sort of risen from, you know, some small fraction 40 years ago to now almost half of the seafood that's produced is not wild caught because we've maxed the oceans out. It's, it's farm-raised. And farm-raised fish, most of them anyhow, like salmon, are carnivorous and they have to be fed fish meal. And that fish meal is usually up until 
the most recent times. They want to make a transition at some point in the very near future. But at this point, that fish meal is is made up of wild-caught, small prey fish like sardine, anchovy, menhaden. And those things are really being overfished now. And fish oil falls into that small fish. It's called a reduction fishery. Uh, you take these small fish and grind them up and either extract fish oil out of them or you grind them up and feed them to farmed fish. That has put a really big impact on these small species. And a really important point about these small species is that these are keystone species. They are food for a really wide range of animals in the ocean. Sea lions, seabirds all rely on these small prey fish for their food. So as we come in with our industrial mechanized fishing methods and scoop out all of these prey fish, we are going to have impacts all the way up the food chain, up to seabirds and sea lions and marine mammals of all sorts that rely on these fish. So, And again, the fish oil industry is, is doing, you know, they're contributing to that because that's what they use to make fish oil are these small prey fish. And there are, there are, I'll say, there are alternatives to fish oil. You can get a, a phytoplankton, algae-based omega-3, you know, go to your co-op or whatever, and you can get a non-fish oil-based omega-3. My understanding is that the omega-3 in the fish actually comes from the fish's consumption of the phytoplankton. So, so go directly to the source and get your omega-3 fatty acids from an, an algal-based supplement rather than a fish oil supplement. That's actually what I was going to ask about. Like, a, you, there are like, yeah, DHA algae-based supplements, and you don't have to worry about fish oil burps either. Whenever you're taking that, by the way. But if like everyone switched over to these algal-based supplements, is that going to cause disruption in the ocean? No, I don't think. I mean, phytoplankton. No, <laughs> I think uh, I, I, you know, knock on wood, I guess here, <laughs> but I can't imagine we'd have the ability to. To take, I mean, phytoplankton is too abundant. And uh, yeah, no, I think we're good there. And if someone says, like, I really don't want to or can't give up fish, is there one fish I should eat that's better than another if I need to change the type of fish I eat? Is there like yeah. a, a farm raised better option? Yeah. First of all, there's a, oh, what's it called? Seafood Watch put out by Monterey Bay Aquarium. So you can download an app called Seafood Watch and it'll tell you, you know, type in the name of the fish and it'll tell you whether it's a good or a bad choice. And so there's there are easy ways to decide because it, it gets a little bit wild trying to figure out, you know, are wild shrimp better than farm shrimp or wild salmon better than farm salmon and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What about some strange exotic fish? name that you haven't heard about before. So there's Seafood Watch app that you can download that will be a nice guide that will give you sort of worst case, medium bad, and super bad, you know, and then not so bad. And word I usually give my students is that, you know, make a distinction if you're going to go with a farmed fish, make a distinction between a carnivorous fish and a planktivorous fish. So tilapia, for example, is a planktivorous fish that eats zooplankton that you can grow up by, you know, adding a little bit of nutrient to grow phytoplankton, to grow zooplankton, and the tilapia will then feed. It's a pretty benign way, at least that aspect of it is pretty benign. So a planktivorous fish like tilapia is more sustainable to raise aquaculture-wise than a carnivorous fish that needs this reduction fishery fish meal from wild-caught sardines and uh, anchovies. And shrimp, one of your worst choices is wild bottom dredged shrimp, you know. So to get wild, these large prawn shrimp, the way you get them is you bottom dredge for wild ones. And I like to 
remind students, I guess, to remember forever that that it's a bad deal. As I say, Forrest Gump, you know, who went out with it, if you've watched the movie Forrest Gump, at some point in the movie, he goes out on a shrimping boat with his buddy in the Gulf of Mexico. And I, I claim that that makes Forrest Gump a jerk. <laughs> and <laughs> I get some good laughs out of people from that. So bottom dredging of these large wild, you know, wild shrimp is really a bad choice because bottom dredging you know, 75% of the biology you pull up from the bottom of the ocean when you bottom dredge gets thrown back as dead material. So the bycatch, the incidental catch is really large with bottom dredging. It basically wipes the whole bottom clear just to grab a few shrimp. Wild ca- our farm-raised shrimp, they're planktivorous. So you'd think, okay, we're good there. But you got to sort of distinguish this because there's another aspect to shrimp farming. So shrimp are, are planktivorous, so they don't need the sardine and the anchovies to be ground up and fed to them. But but if you're in a developing country that doesn't have strong regulations, a lot of mangroves are being destroyed because those are sort of prime spots to, to raise shrimp in. And so if it's foreign farmed shrimp, <laughs> It's not good because mangroves were probably destroyed to house the, sh- the, the shrimp farms. If it's U.S. raised farmed shrimp, it was probably raised not in mangrove areas. It was probably better, you know, better choice. So U.S. farm raised shrimp is a good choice. And again, this gets mind numbing and mind twisted. So just download the seafood app and it'll uh, Coast Watch. I mean, uh, Seafood Watch app. If I, yeah, I'm getting all... Yeah, I think it was called Seafood Watch App. Anyway, Monterey Bay Aquarium, sustainable food choices. You'll you'll find the app. Okay. And if someone's like listening and in the dark corner of their mind where they know nobody can hear them or see them is thinking, well, <laughs> like who really cares about the ocean? Like there's those that's all happening underwater. Does that even make a difference in our atmosphere and in their personal life besides not being able to eat fish? Like, can we tie it together somehow? You know, people like this comment, I guess. It's not related to fish directly, but to, you know, the health of the ocean, kind of broadly speaking, which I'll fold in climate change and ocean acidification and overfishing. So the the oceans are being hit by a lot of directions. And, you know, I mentioned earlier in the broadcast about activating people to speak up. and, And one of the themes I have throughout the semester in my ocean class is the ocean is an integral part of Earth's life support system. It keeps you alive. Half of the oxygen made through photosynthesis is made in the ocean, the other half on land, roughly split 50-50 between land and ocean photosynthesis. So, so it's poetically referred to as every other breath you take, you owe a thank you to the ocean. So it's part of your life support system. It goes beyond that. The oceans, more broadly speaking, not just the biology, are of vital importance to the Earth's life support system. It's taken up 93% of the heat imbalance created by the greenhouse gases. And because water doesn't change temperature much when it absorbs heat, it's, it's attenuated the global warming that we otherwise would have had. The oceans have taken up about a third of all the CO2 emitted to the atmosphere from fossil carbon energy combustion. The oceans have taken that up. So I, I repeatedly say, you owe a big thank you, you owe a big thank you, you owe a big thank you to the oceans. And because it is part of your life support system, you have every right to speak up when it's messed up. I try to tell students that I think if you understood, you know, that this is connected to you, then you'd be more apt to speak up and not stand around. And I make an analogy that if you read in the newspaper or online that somebody's house got broken into and, and and messed up, you know, you'd have this one moment of like, oh, man, that's too bad. But the next day you'd forget about it. And 
But if it was your house, you would not forget about it. I'm telling you, this ocean is not somebody else's ocean. It's not the ocean for the, for the fishermen. It's not the ocean for the people who owns a house right on the beach. It's your ocean. It keeps you alive. And when it's messed with, you should see it as directly messing with your stuff and you should get really upset. So yeah, it's all tied together and it's all connected in a pretty important way to your well-being. And to kind of round out our conversation, I just want to talk briefly about freshwater consumption. I remember I grew up in the desert in New Mexico, and there's always a drought, and we had our aquifer that everybody would talk about. And I always felt really stressed when I'd see running water because I knew how little it rained (laughs) where I lived. (laughs) And yeah, like it still blows my mind even to this day that we have enough water for everything that we're doing. So like what is the kind of the state of freshwater consumption and, and our supply? So when I talk about pollution from animal agriculture, and I focus a lot on nitrogen pollution and or fertilizer pollution, but I, I also take the opportunity to throw out these other aspects of why consuming meat is a bad thing and, and its impact on freshwater demand is a, is a big thing. It's by far the largest, you know, per ton of meat made, the amount of water that goes in is, you know, millions of gallons per ton of meat versus, you know, a few couple hundred thousand or a hundred thousand gallons for uh, the equivalent plant-based products. So it's got a big impact. People have done studies that show that if you went from a normal meat diet to a vegan diet, your your water footprint would drop by 60%. So it has a big impact. I'll say that it hasn't gotten a lot of press, but man, freshwater is going to be a giant deal in the not-too-distant future. About a third of the aquifers around the world, about a third are under threat. These aquifers took thousands of years to fill up, and we are pumping them out like mad, and they can't refill, right, because it takes thousands of years to refill them. So people refer to it as mining this fresh water, and we are mining this water at this great rate, depleting these aquifers, and future generations, just like the climate change, are going to come along and they're going to go, what the hell? You know, you pulled all of this water out and left none for us. You know, you jerks, you know, it's going to be that kind of thing. So we are wasting this water that's a finite resource. It's not inexhaustible. Sure, you know, it can rain and water can come back onto the surface, but this, you know, the vast amount of the agriculture that you think about is water pumped from depth out of these aquifers. And these aquifers are finite. These aquifers are finite and they are ancient and they do not refill on human timescales. They refill on thousands of year timescales. So we're mining this water. A third of them are already under threat. And uh, it will be an issue that, you know, for people that are kind of middle age or younger, you're definitely going to hear more about that in the not too distant future, the sort of the, the more broadly than just if you lived in a desert region. Yeah. So again, just eating less meat is probably the best thing that you can do. Yes, <laughs> by far. <laughs> yeah. Every bit, again, every bit, like I said, the studies show reducing you know, your meat consumption, becoming vegan reduces your water footprint, your overall water footprint as you move through the world by 60%. Okay. And my, my last question is, you know, to you and I, it seems really obvious, like what the solution is. And we've made changes in our lives to reflect our beliefs. But like, there's so many people in the population, people here you know, these facts, whether they decide to eat less meat because of health reasons or environment, or, you know, they care about animal suffering. But, 
you know, people hear these things and for some people, it's enough for them to want to make an immediate change. And for others, it kind of goes in one ear out the other. And some people plain just don't believe it. So when we talk about future generations looking back and saying, well, why didn't you guys make changes? Like, how can we empower people to believe the things that we're talking about and to actually care about those things? Well, I mean, I've got a, a long list of them, I guess. You know, I mean, in my class, I'm always trying to find the switch that will turn people on to sort of acting on these things. And one of them is, this is your life support system. You should be, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid kind of thing. And not just that, but that you, maybe less than that, actually, it's that you have every right to speak up about this. I think some people are just too nice and they don't want to raise, you know, raise a ruckus over something that they don't feel they're directly connected to, like the ocean. They don't fish on the ocean. So, Maybe they don't really have as much right to kind of yell and scream when it's messed with. And I try to convince them that that's just as much your ocean as anybody else's. And I also try to instill this idea of what I call generational selfishness, you know. And I don't know if I'm getting exactly to your question here, but, you know, I've heard people speak up about we need to drill because we need more jobs and we need a better economy. And you hear we, 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 and you think... Well, they're not exact. I mean, they're thinking about lots of people, not just themselves, it seems like. But if you translate it into my generation needs the job, my generation needs this, my, 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 my generation and screw every other generation, that's really selfish. And uh, so getting a new ethos of, of thinking about living within our generational means, I think, might be, you know, if you can convince people that that's an aspect that we need to work towards. And then finally, I guess I I call it the just do it thing. And I have a good story for you that I almost need to tell the story in order for you to understand what I mean by it. And it's the just do it thing where if you see that if you see the situation, you see what you know, what has to happen. Don't just kind of let it drop, but actually act on it. And great things will come about if you live your life that way. And here's my story. This is the story I've told a zillion times now, some to third graders and some to college kids about how I became an oceanographer. And it kind of comes back to this idea of seeing something finally for the first time and acting on it. And so here's the story. I grew up in Washington State, Olympic Peninsula, in a small town that was sort of a one company town. They owned the sawmill on the bay on Puget Sound, and they owned the logging operations in the Olympic Mountains behind the town. I grew up in grade school and I liked science. In grade school, I was the kid of five kids that got the microscope or the chemistry set for Christmas. But when I got into high school, all my buddies that I grew up in, very blue collar, 7,000 population town with this one company, all my buddies that I grew up in my neighborhood, they all went into woodshop and carpentry classes and industrial arts classes. And so I did that too. And I didn't think of it as oh, but I like science, but I want to be with my friends. I just, I thought that's how the world was organized. So I did it. And when I got out of high school, half of my friends went to the sawmill and worked and the other half went logging. And I liked the outdoors. So I went logging and I logged for a year. And I thought this is going to be my life because this is how the world is organized. And then I had my first summer vacation. I was 19 years old. And I was like, well, I don't want to just stay around town because I got this vacation of two weeks. I'm going to ride my motorcycle, my road bike down to Colorado from Washington State by myself and visit my aunt and uncle, my cousins down there. So I set out and the first night I got to Eastern Oregon and I had a tent and sleeping bag on the back of my motorcycle and I found a small campground just off the side of the road and set up and that was fine. Next day, which is where this whole story, the whole purpose of this story, I was in Salt Lake City, Utah and uh, it was getting dark out and 
I'm like, well, there's no campground. And I, so I pulled into a motel and uh, I was standing at the front desk and I had this moment, this epiphany that changed my life, which is, which is I'm like standing there going, oh, in my head, you know, not out loud or the guy would have thought I was crazy. But I'm like, oh my God, like, I'm totally checking into a motel by myself. And uh, this is what my parents did. You know, this is what adults do. And I'm like, I'm like totally an adult now. Because <laughs> when I turned 18, it's not like I woke up and went, a ding, I'm totally an adult. You know, it's like this slow, slow progression, you know, and that moment just shot through me. And I'm like, I'm totally an adult now. <laughs> and But more importantly, and this is the key, absolute key, it's, man, if I wanted to, if I wanted to choose to go past Colorado, I could just keep going. Like all of a sudden I realized that I could dream up an idea and I could act on it. And I got back from that trip and I'm like, oh my God, like I don't have to be a logger. <laughs> like that's what all my friends are, but I don't have to do that. I can go past this, you know, I can go past Colorado if I chose to. And I'm like, what would be the coolest thing? I want to go past this. What would be the coolest thing? So I spent another year logging, but I'd be thinking when I wasn't logging, I'd be thinking, what do I want to do? And it boiled down to, do I get a bigger motorcycle and travel the country or do I become an oceanographer and travel the world? And I remembered I liked science, but I really, more than the science, I liked this idea of kind of swashbuckling, getting on boats and seeing the whole world. And it took me a while, but I finally decided to give oceanography a try before getting a bigger motorcycle. And uh, here I am today at Cornell. So, so the moral of the story here is that, you know, if you, and I can tell you when I became a vegetarian. I was in college and I was cooking this hamburger in a frying pan and I was looking down at it. I'd done this a million times, my family, everything. I never thought twice about it. And I saw all this grease kind of bubbling out of the side of this hamburger patty, boiling in a, and frying in a frying pan. And I looked at it and I'm like, what the hell? I, I don't have to do this. I can choose whatever I want. I just pick what I want and then I can act on it. So I just threw it in the garbage 30 years ago and I haven't looked back. So I tell the students in my ocean class, if I could give you one gift, I mean, God damn it, one gift, it wouldn't, you know, because you can intellectualize what I just said, but if you could feel inside deep, you know, that all the things that you think are right and wrong, all especially all the things you think are right, and if you act on them and you know you can act on them and you follow through on them, you, I would give you that gift because all kinds of good things follow from that. If you see something that you want, you know, dream it up and then act on it, that you can act on it. So it's just do it. Yeah. So making those choices, seeing that less meat, you know, you can just see the wrongness of it and, you know, or, or eating, see the rightness of eating less meat and, you know, just act on it. You've got that. You've got it within you to do that. You don't have to just sit there and let it fall out of your head. Act on it. And again, you start living your life that way. Also, it's a really great, I mean, I went from being a logger to a professor at Cornell University. So yeah, good things can happen when you act on the things that you believe in. Yeah, I love that. And I agree 100%. My story is a little bit, the career choices are a little bit different, but I too was going down a path that I thought I had to go down because that's just the way that I thought the world worked. And then it was actually, I moved to Colorado and I wanted to be a pro mountain biker and I learned wait a second. Like I, I don't have to, like I got my master's degree in electrical engineering and I realized like, I don't have to do this. I, I don't like this. I don't have to do this. There's other things I can do. And once you start making those choices in your life for yourself that you believe in, like even if they're unconventional, you really can 
you, you, you have no idea where your life is going to take you. And it is so incredibly rewarding and it makes such a big difference into, you know, what it means to be alive. So I, I love that story that you told. Yeah, you yeah, know, yours is identical. I mean, it's absolutely, I, I tell Cornell students, I go, you know, my kind of unthought through kind of groove that I was following was logging, but maybe yours, maybe your parents were engineers and you majored engineering, but, you know, maybe you got lucky and that's what you really should be doing, but you should pause for a minute and ask, is this the coolest possible thing I could ever possibly do with my life? And if it is, great. But if it's not, I had a student, actually, I gave that talk in my ocean class and uh, she emailed me the next day and she goes, you totally changed my life. Like, I'm in government, but I, all my life I wanted to be an interior designer. I'm going to major in interior design when I graduate from Cornell and you know, graduate school. So, you know, people waking up to being able to make choices and acting on it, you know, it. Yeah, just you. asking Who why. Like, say why. Like, why Why did I choose this? And, you know, do I really care about this or not? Or, like, am I just doing this because everybody else is doing it? Right, exactly. Yeah, so your audience has an Anna, too. You made a great life <laughs> yourself by making those choices, and so did I. I love it. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, say they heard something and they want more information, is it okay if they send you a message? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they can send me, send me an email. And where's the best place for them to find your email? You could just search. <laughs> I I get, if you Googled, you know, Bruce Monger Cornell, you would certainly get me and find my email address. All right. I'll put a link in the show notes too, but, yeah. I, I, but not so you get spam. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks Bye. so much for coming on the show. And I'm, I'm oh, super excited for... about everything and really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to talk to you. I hope you guys found a lot of value in that episode and you learned a lot. And go to the show notes under the resources section. You can find that at sonyalooney.com slash podcasts, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. I actually put a link for the plant-based nutrition studies course if you want to get your own certificate. I put the documentaries that were mentioned and the Seafood Watch app if you are still wanting to eat fish, but you want to make better decisions about the type of fish that you eat. And if some of this resonated with you and you're like, yeah, I'm going to eat less animal products. I'm going to eat less meat and less dairy because I know that that's going to make a difference. Feel free to join our Facebook group. Or if you need any help figuring out what to eat or how to eat, just send me an email. People email me almost every day actually asking about plant-based nutrition and just moving the needle a little bit will make a big difference. I hope you guys have an awesome day. Thank you again for being a part of my community and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you right back here on Monday.